Welcome everyone to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, coming to you from the Reliance Mine Saloon in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I am your co-host, licensed battlefield guide, Eric Lindblade, and I am joined by my co-host, James Hessler, also a licensed battlefield guide. Last week, we had a first in the history of the podcast. We have gone to a part two for an episode, The Peach Orchard. We had so much material, we had to break it up. So, Jim, where did we last leave off talking about The Peach Orchard? Yeah, so Eric, where we last left off, there was a whole lot of stuff going on. General Meade had more or less just found out that Sickles and the Third Corps had moved forward into the advanced position, and Longstreet and his Confederates were just coming to the stunning conclusion that the Union left flank did not resemble what they thought it was going to resemble when they decided on their plan of attack. So there was chaos, confusion, artillery shells flying back and forth, all because Dan Sickles and his Third Corps are not where anyone expects them to be. So we've established that Sickles and his men are occupying the Peach Orchard. Most of this ground is going to be defended by one particular brigade in the Third Corps, General Charles Graham's brigade of about 1,600 men. But as they get into this position, they're in Joseph Shurfee's orchard, they're along the Emmitsburg Road. Eric, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Peach Orchard as a defensive position? As you look at it as a defensive position, it is high high ground. Just drive anywhere around it, you'll notice that it is a pretty prominent eminence along that part of the Emmitsburg Road. Of course, there are going to be some drawbacks here as well. One, these guys are in an exposed position that's vulnerable to attack at a number of different points. Also, they are in that artillery crossfire, and Union reinforcements are a good bit away from them here. Jim, what else do you think? As we described the position last time, running along the Emmitsburg Road at the Peach Orchard, the line kind of angles off to the southeast through the weed field out towards Devil's Den. Folks, think of this as kind of a giant V. Peach Orchard itself is sort of the point of that V. In Civil War terms, this is often referred to as a salient. You know, I often say to people that if you're studying the Battle of Gettysburg, this is probably the only field of study that I can think of where you're going to frequently use words like cops or salient. And in this case, the salient that Sickles occupies at the Peach Orchard is generally considered to be a bad position because he is susceptible to fire from two sides. One of the other challenges that Sickles will have with this new position is that he has approximately 10,000 men in the Third Corps. He's now taking up a position that is twice the length of what he has, and he doesn't have twice the men. And sometimes we look at maps, even the wayside that is in the peach orchard today you get the sense that this is one solid line that sickles has Mm -hmm. in this new position and it's anything but there's a lot of gaps there's a lot of weak spots yeah, and that's going to lead to another challenge that we touched on with General Meade, the idea of getting reinforcements to the left flank. So by moving forward, Sickles has essentially violated the the benefit of what would have been General Meade's interior lines. Many of us know if the Union Army is in sort of this position that General Meade wants them to be, Culp's Hill, Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Little Round Top, that line would more or less take the position of a fish. Now, as I often remind people on tours, keep in mind during the battle, nobody says rally around the fishhook. So this is a little bit of a post-battle invention by folks like us. But nevertheless, with the Union line as a fishhook, the benefit Meade has is interior lines. He can throw reinforcements from flank to flank much easier than General Lee could on the outside of the line. By moving forward, Sickles has basically stretched General Meade's defenses such that Meade no 
longer has interior lines in his troops, anybody who's going to reinforce the Third Corps is going to have to cover about a mile of open ground to get out to the Emmitsburg Road to support Sickles, which really leads to the last point. Sickles' flanks are in the air. The left flank at Devil's Den is in the air, but the right flank, if you will remember from Part 1, which was supposed to be connected to the left of Hancock's Second Corps, Sickles' right flank is now somewhere in the vicinity of about three-quarters of a mile in front of Hancock. Definitely not connecting with Hancock, or was Meade's original understanding. So essentially with the stage set now, we have the Confederate infantry now moving off into this fight. Some of the most iconic fighting of the American Civil War. Little Round Top, the Wheat Field, Peach Orchard, the Valley of Death. Devil's Den, these are all places that are synonymous with Civil War combat. Yeah, and I would argue that the attention given to the combat itself in the Peach Orchard historically has been much less than the attention given to the combat in those other areas, and we need to change that tonight. Absolutely. I think if you look at the casualties for not only the Union troops that are in the vicinity of the Peach Orchard, but some of the Confederate brigades hitting in there, you're seeing some high losses that are comparable to things you would see even in the wheat field Mm -hmm. for some of these units, sometimes even more. Yeah, and I want to come back to that later when we talk about Barksdale. But first, as the Confederate attack is stepping off, it's basically moving from the Confederate right towards the Confederate left. Some historians have termed this as sort of an echelon attack on Longstreet's part. I've never really been sure that that is planned or intentional, but what essentially is happening is that brigades are kind of stepping off one at a time. So as we've touched on a couple of times, as Hood's division is moving towards Devil's Den and Little Round Top, and then eventually other brigades in that division are moving towards the Wheat Field. Union artillery in and around the Peach Orchard and the Wheat Field Road position are initially doing a nice job of hitting that Confederate infantry in the left flank. So Union artillery around the Peach Orchard is initially getting the job done, even though at the same time they're taking counter-battery fire from their counterparts on Seminary Ridge. So I think we might have touched on it in the last episode, but man, at least initially, this is a real victory for the Union artillery system. And when I look at this Confederate attack, it's often viewed as almost two separate pieces. Hood goes in, then McClaws, but I think the intention very much was for Hood to support McClaws going into this area. This is in concert. These are not going to be two separate actions. And as we're going to see later in the day, Hood's division gets bogged down in places like Devil's Den, Little Round Top, and the Wheat Field. They're not showing up at the time that other commanders, especially James Longstreet, was hoping for in what's eventually going to be that assault against the Peach Orchard. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great point to kind of seg into the assault on the Peach Orchard. McClaws is the second division commander, and also some of his brigade commanders are in fact waiting for Hood to more or less come sweeping up the Emmitsburg Road, and then they are supposed to cooperate with them. I think in one account, Longstreet sort of calls it Hood pressing on the left while McClaws is going to press on the front. But as we've said, Hood increasingly gets bogged down, and that doesn't happen. So the first brigade under McClaws's command that's going to sort of come into this sector is Kershaw's Brigade, the South Carolinians who are basically in position behind a stone wall along Warfield Ridge. Now, as I think we alluded to in episode one, Kershaw had originally been told by Longstreet himself to basically move out across the Emmitsburg Road, sort of put your left flank on the Emmitsburg Road, and then essentially pivot and sweep up the Emmitsburg Road towards Gettysburg. As we've already established, because 
Sickles is moving forward, that can't happen. So Kershaw is going to have to come up with basically a modification to his movements that's going to have a direct impact on combat in and around the Peach Orchard. Eric, what does Kershaw do? As Joseph Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade is crossing the Emmitsburg Road, they're going to begin to hit some troubles. They're advancing towards the area around the Peach Orchard. Not only are they receiving fire from Union artillery batteries along what's today the Wheatfield Road, they're also receiving a heavy rate of fire from the area called the Stony Hill. This is a prominent little rocky rise which is to the west of the wheat field. So what Kershaw does at this moment is essentially splits his brigade. A portion will move against the area around the Stony Hill while the other part moves towards the batteries along the Wheatfield Road. But very soon trouble is going to begin to brew in Kershaw's brigade. And Jim, I think you have a little bit more about that. Yeah, I do. You know, and it's interesting, Eric, because some of the accounts later from some of the artillerymen and around the uh, Peach Orchard seem to indicate that for a brief moment in time, Kershaw's men got close enough. These batteries felt legitimately threatened by the advancing Confederate soldiers. So at one point, just as these Union batteries seem to almost be within Kershaw's grasp, an order gets passed along both the right wing and the left wing of Kershaw's sort of two moving columns to basically turn by the flank. So what happens is troops in Kershaw's left wing who were fronting and moving towards Union batteries now turn and present their left flank to those Peach Orchard and Wheatfield Road batteries. And the Wheatfield Road batteries in particular take full advantage of that. They just start raining canister and shot and shell upon Kershaw's men, literally make a shambles of this assault such that Kershaw's boys have to hunker down around the Rose Farm and essentially wait for reinforcements. Big mistake on the part of Kershaw's men and nobody later ever really completely owned up to who made it and why. You made a good point that no one really owns up to what happens and I think if you read some of the post-war writings, even some of the wartime writings in Kershaw's brigade, you'll see a lot of back and forth of who's to blame, who this should rest on. I think what we have to keep in mind is that at times this is not a tabletop board game. Yeah, it's is not it, fantasy football. Yeah, this right. is a fantasy football here. This is real life and as you're moving troops into this area, sometimes you got to make calls on the fly. You have to make some tough decisions. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. In this case, there were some bad decisions made in Kershaw's brigade, some poor communication. Unfortunately, it's going to lead to heavy casualties in that South Carolina brigade. Absolutely. Now, while Kershaw's men are hunkered down, eventually Paul Sam's brigade is going to come up behind them and offer them some relief. But for the most part, Kershaw's guys at this point are looking to the brigade that should have been moving forward on their left, and that is the brigade of William Barksdale's Mississippians. And again, this ties into what seems to be an increasing lack of communication and coordination among the Confederate brigades as the day is progressing. Guys increasingly looking to their left and saying, where is that other brigade? Why are they being held back? Why are they not going forward? And there's several accounts of that. I think Kershaw's men in particular paid a price because as Porter Alexander later said, had these two brigades, Kershaw and Barksdale, stepped forward at the same time, they probably could have had an even easier job of sweeping through the Peach Orchard defenses than Barksdale is going to have by himself. So really kind of a tragic mismanagement on the Confederate parts. And as Alexander later said, and I think he's right, while he thought the fighting was superb, he 
said few battlefields, in his opinion, could exhibit worse examples of tactics. And I'm going to kind of agree with Porter Alexander on that in this case. And as we look at this moment, who would we sort of put the blame on here? Are we looking at Lafayette McClaws? Are we looking maybe even at James Longstreet here and seeing that these units are working in concert with each other rather than really what's at this point very piecemeal attacks going into this part of the field? Yeah, you know, first of all, Eric, it's interesting that you say that because what I see in a lot of Gettysburg books is that people will generally blame the overall lack of coordination on John Bell Hood's wounding. Well, that's great, folks, when you're talking about within Hood's division, but it doesn't explain why similar issues are occurring in McClaws's division. In McClaws's case, he seems to be getting close supervision from Longstreet. So if you have breakdowns in communication between the brigades and within McClaws's division, folks, Longstreet is right there on the scene. And again, I feel like we have to put up the attorney disclaimer here. We're not bashing Longstreet. We're not second-guessing Longstreet. With all of the abuse Longstreet took in the early years from the Lost Cause enthusiasts, I kind of feel like now the pendulum has switched so far in the other direction to you really can't say anything negative about Longstreet. But I think it is telling to kind of ask yourself, who would you sort of blame these issues on? And again, Longstreet is there on the scene. And I think we can't discount the impact that Hood's wound is going to have in the performance of his division, which as we mentioned earlier, is a key part to McClaws and his potential success in this action. Of course, McClaws comes to this battle unscathed. He's right here on the scene. Longstreet's right there, as Jim said. So I think we do have to really look at this with a critical eye between both of those commanders. Agree. Agree. And, you know, I wasn't sure when I was going to touch on it, but it may be as good of a point to address this now. Obviously, Longstreet and McClaws would have a falling out later, but even a few days after this battle, McClaws wrote a letter to his wife basically saying to the effect that Longstreet is a humbug. He gave contrary orders during this assault. Uh, He was really excited, and when his errors were discovered, he became increasingly overbearing. I consider him a man of small capacity unchivalrous and you know it's my intention to get away from him as uh, as soon as possible folks I want to tell you I I just recited that letter from memory and I think that was pretty close to the actual phraseology that McClaws gives but the point is McClaws and Longstreet had a relatively close relationship and what is clear on July 2nd at Gettysburg is that McClaws is feeling a little bit slighted and aggrieved over the way Longstreet handles them. And again, folks, it's just sort of an interesting subcontext into this whole action. And this is very much where the human element comes into play on a battlefield that we don't often look at, but really has an impact. And for McClaws, we talked two episodes ago about the reorganization briefly in Lee's yeah. army. Yeah, McClaws the guy that might sort of felt he's a little left out in the cold here. Maybe he should have been considered for core command. And I think his quote to his wife of saying, you know, I want to get out from under him as much as I can, maybe looking for an opportunity to maybe move into a higher position in the Confederate forces. Agree. Should we uh, get to Barksdale at this point? I think we should have Barksdale go in at this point. Yeah, so... Because he is chomping at the bit. Oh, he's foaming at the mouth. He's ready to kill Yankees. So, William Barksdale. William Barksdale. Like Sickles, a former congressman. You know, Barksdale, his gained the reputation in the pre-war as sort of this pro-slavery fire eater. 
I think that might be a little overblown. I think there, if you look at some of Barksdale's pre-war speeches or that, he might have been a little more conciliatory than we often give him credit for. But there's no doubt that, you know, when his home state did secede, that Barksdale was an enthusiastic rebel. And, you know, I always think of Barksdale, I think of him performing well, defending the river crossings at the Battle of Fredericksburg. But here, the late afternoon, July 2nd at Gettysburg, it's probably about six o'clock in the evening is approaching. As we said, Barksdale is, is harassing McClaws, harassing Longstreet. When can I go in? When can I go in? You know, I want to move. When can I go in? And Longstreet, who again is on the scene, seems to be telling him, just be patient. We're all going to go in presently. Just be patient and wait. So whatever the cause of the delay is, and there's some conflicting debates on this, but whatever the cause of the debate is, at least by some accounts, it's all part of Longstreet's plan. So at this point, one of the most famous charges in the American Civil War begins. Barksdale's Mississippians move forward. And as they move forward, as we know, it's going to be a smashing success, absolutely shattering the Union line at the Peach Orchard. But Jim, do Union forces maybe inadvertently aid this? Yeah, they they absolutely do, Eric. And I think it's a component of the fighting that people often don't realize. So let's back up for a minute if we could. During the earlier phases of the fighting, I think I had mentioned earlier that the Peach Orchard was defended by General Charles Graham's brigade. He's got several Pennsylvania regiments. But in addition to that, Graham received support from another regiment from George Burling's brigade, the 2nd New Hampshire. And then later on, he's going to receive additional support from the 3rd Michigan into Trobriand's brigade and the 3rd Maine in Ward's brigade. So, okay, folks, if you're getting a little dizzy with all the names and the brigades and the regimental numbers that I'm throwing around right now, the point that I'm trying to make is that you've got elements of several brigades defending this sector and as things get hotter and hotter command and control is going to start to break down these units are going to lose their cohesion because these are not necessarily units that are used to fighting next to each other so okay with that as the setup the second new hampshire which again had come into the area from burling's brigade is commanded by a 21 year old former postal clerk by the name of colonel ed bailey ed bailey you know you think of ed bailey that sounds like an old guy's name but he's only 21 years old. Is he the Union boy colonel? Ooh, I don't know. He was, for the most part, highly regarded within the ranks, known as a bit of a strict disciplinarian, but generally highly regarded for his ability. Now, these units... Graham's units in the 2nd New Hampshire are initially supporting Union artillery in and around the Wheatfield Road, Emmitsburg Road intersection. But as Kershaw in particular had been advancing, Colonel Bailey saw an opportunity to move his men, I'll say forward because they're more or less facing south, but to move his men south from the Wheatfield Road, Emmitsburg Road intersection to the southern boundary of the Peach Orchard in order to try to pour some additional fire into General Kershaw. What happens is when Bailey and the 2nd New Hampshire move forward, several other Union infantry regiments join them such that they open up a hole of, oh, I forgot, about 150 yards or so along the Emmitsburg Road so that when Barksdale's charge begins and Barksdale's got four regiments, well-led, 
eager to fight, but when Barksdale's charge begins, they are now essentially coming towards the Peach Orchard that has most of the infantry facing south instead of west, and there's a nice hole along the Emmitsburg Road that Barksdale's gonna exploit. And in many ways, this is almost like watching a great running back see a hole open up in his offensive line, the defense, and just he, they head right towards it. And yeah. of course, this is what Barksdale's gonna do. These are veteran troops, they're well-led, they know what to do in this moment, and they're going to head right to that vulnerable point in the Union line. Yeah, they are. And on the southern boundary of the Peach Orchard in particular, there's almost formed what could be referred to as the bloody angle of the second day. The second New Hampshire and several other regiments are facing south. One lone regiment, the 68th Pennsylvania, is next to the second New Hampshire and still facing west. Unfortunately, the commander of the 68th Pennsylvania, an otherwise accomplished veteran by the name of Colonel William Tippin, seems to get, for lack of a better word, a little spooked by Barksdale's advance. And after throwing a volley or two at Barksdale's men, Tippin decides to retreat back to where they came from under the cover of the federal batteries and by Tippin in the 68th Pennsylvania falling back, now you got an even bigger hole along the Emmitsburg Road. And the 21st Mississippi in particular just comes storming right through that hole that Tippin has abandoned. Bailey and the men of the 2nd New Hampshire, Eric, now have enemy troops behind them. And now Bailey and the 2nd New Hampshire and other units like the 141st Pennsylvania and the 3rd Maine and the 3rd Michigan are all going to have to fall back from the southern boundary of the Peach Orchard. Think about how remarkable that is. Five Union regiments falling back with primarily only one Confederate unit, the 21st Mississippi, directly facing them. Yeah, it's an interesting moment, but I think we see these deficiencies in the Union line. It's like watching cracks and ice begin to develop. One in of itself is not a problem, but you have multiple areas where it's happening. It's going to cause a serious issue in this area. And what we're now seeing is really the collapse of the Peach Orchard salient really beginning in earnest. Yeah, absolutely it is. And not only does Union infantry start to pull out, but some of the batteries have to start to fall back as well. One of the things that Britt and I really wanted to do when we wrote our new book, Gettysburg's Peach Orchard, was we wanted to make sure that we covered some personal stories of some of the less heralded soldiers who fought in and around the um, Peach Orchard. In my estimation, only two Congressional Medal of Honor awards are given for fighting directly in the Peach Orchard. Now, I've heard people say, yeah, well, Dan Sickles gets one. Yeah, but he's not directly in the Peach Orchard. Of guys who fight in the Peach Orchard, I'm only aware of two Congressional Medals of Honor. and Both of those are given for pulling batteries out of the scene. And can I share a story of one of these young men? Absolutely. All right. One of the batteries along the Wheatfield Road was Hart's Battery, and the right section was commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Edward Knox. Now, Knox later said that as the Confederates were coming close to un overrunning his guns, and I'm going to quote directly from Knox. Let's hear what the hero himself had to say. Quote, the Confederates thought they had my guns and made a dash for them. As they came, I let go both pieces with double canister, and as I did so, I yelled to my boys to lay down and pretend 
and they were done for. And thus, not heeding us, the Johnnies swept through my section to meet a charge from the support in our rear. Now Knox goes on then to talk about how initially then the Confederate assault was temporarily repulsed, but then after they had again passed over us, we got up and with our prolongs and the assistance of the infantry boys, we hauled our guns back. Now folks, Knox was wounded in this action, but he still managed to escape with his guns. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor in 1892 for holding his ground with the battery after other batteries had supposedly fallen back and doing so while wounded. And Eric, I feel like these are the stories that are often not told in and around the Peach Orchard because we focus so much on Sickles, Longstreet, and Barksdale. And it's time that people were aware of the Edward Knoxes of the Battle of Gettysburg. Absolutely. And the troops that are in and around the Peach Orchard, they put up really as good of a fight as they can. Not really seeing a lot of incompetence per se. I think they're just in a bad spot. And especially in the Union artillery, they are hanging on almost until it's almost too late for them. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, those are the unsung heroes of the Peach Orchards, those artillers that are hanging to their guns as long as they can, pouring canister, pouring shot and shell into the Confederates that are moving forward, and also buying some time for some of those infantry to maybe form a better position elsewhere or to buy them a little time to get out of the salient. Yeah, I agree. And as we're still talking about the retreat of the batteries, since I touched on Knox as our Medal of Honor recipient, I would be negligent if I didn't mention the second one, which is Private Casper Carlisle. Now, he was also, he was a member of Thompson's Battery, which was also another nearby battery that at this point is scrambling to get out. Barksdale's pursuing infantrymen are going to direct their fire at the horses in Thompson's battery, and as they fall back under a galling fire, Private Casper Carlisle assisted Captain Thompson in disengaging four dead horses from one of the guns. And then with another horse fatally wounded, Carlisle personally led his guns off the field toward the Trossel farm, and the young private saved the peace from artillerymen's ultimate humiliation which, as you know, Eric, is capture by the enemy. Now, the story goes on, though. Thompson was so impressed in his report that he urged that a medal be granted Carlisle for his conduct on this occasion and subsequent good conduct on July 3rd. But unfortunately, Carlisle never received the commendation. So after the war, he returned to the Pittsburgh area, and he worked there as a laborer and, not surprisingly, as a teamster. He was active, though, with veterans reunions, and finally in 1892, the United States awarded Carlisle the Medal of Honor. But, unfortunately, the receipt of the nation's highest military honor did not prevent him from dying penniless, in exhaustion, and obscurity. Sadly, his grave was neglected and forgotten until rediscovered by historians in the 1990s. And in 1998, a Civil War enthusiast in the Pittsburgh area paid for a new headstone, which was dedicated in a long overdue ceremony. And Eric, that's part of what we do, why we do what we do. Because you got to remember the guys like Casper Carlisle, who might not have even been recognized in their own time, but they deserve to have their stories told. So despite the heroism of numerous Union soldiers in this area, the Confederate onslaught is just too much to bear. And often, I think, students of the battle view this point as the salient shattered. These guys are running back to Cemetery Ridge as fast as they can, but that's not really the reality. 
because we're going to see Union troops trying to make a second stand in another peach orchard right. just north of the Wheatfield Road. Yeah, if you'll remember before, we said that the Sherfy family really owned what we're going to consider two peach orchards, four acres on the south side of the Weedfield Road, but they had another six acres extending on the north side of the Weedfield Road and stretching across from the Sherfy house. Eric, to the point that you made, it's really here that the Union regiments stop and make a stand. The 68th Pennsylvania, the 2nd New Hampshire, other units that we didn't mention yet, like the 7th New Jersey, initially pause, try to fight off Barksdale's onslaught. And I really think, and I think I can back it up with the numbers and the accounts, but really the fighting here north of the Wheatfield Road was bloodier and heavier than the fighting that occurred south of the Wheatfield Road in what is traditionally considered within Gettysburg National Military Park, the Peach Orchard. This other orchard north of the Wheatfield Road was really the killing fields on which a lot of this heavy fighting between Barksdale's men and the remnants of the Union forces is going to happen. And in many ways, it's an overlooked and forgotten part. Oh, yeah. You think about even our tour routes we make, we hardly ever drive down that part of United States Avenue going down to the Trossel Farm. It sort of gets forgotten. I think a lot of the interpretations is, hey, Peach Orchard breaks, these guys are getting out of here, overlooks a very heroic stand and ultimately a very bloody stand by the Union forces. And I think it's one of the forgotten areas of the battlefield that are going to see heavy casualties that even to a well-read scholar of the battle or even a well-read student of the battle would overlook. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think when when we did our book, Gettysburg's Peach Orchard, this was even sort of a relevation to us. We're like, geez, you know, we had never really appreciated how much heavier we think the fighting on this side of the Wheatfield Road was. And again, to your point, you know, if you go there today in the in the National Park, there's a few monuments there. Buckland's Battery Monument is there, the 73rd New York, the foundation of the Wentz property. But I would encourage people to park uh, legally, park in a legally prescribed spot around the Peach Orchard or along the Wheatfield Road, and just kind of walk that field north from the Wheatfield Road, kind of along Sickles Avenue, up to, again, the Trussell Farm Lane, or what we consider today to be United States Avenue. And folks, you're going to be walking on, again, some of the most unheralded and often undescribed combat that occurred on the second day. Take a look at the Elliott burial map. Compare the graves here to some of the surroundings. You're going to roughly find somewhere in the vicinity of 100 graves in the aftermath of this action stretching from here to the uh, Trussell Farm. As we know, Barksdale has blown open the Union line at the Peach Orchard. There's this last stand being made north of what we sort of view as the traditional Peach Orchard. But we also have some other Confederate brigades moving into this area. We have not only the Georgia Brigade of William Wofford, but we also have the Alabama Brigade of Cadmus Wilcox moving into this area, adding even more pressure against those Union troops. Yeah, and and Wilcox is primarily going up against the Union Infantry Division led by hard-hitting General Andrew Humphreys. 
Humphreys is really the only West Pointer in the Union Army's Third Corps command chain. And his Humphreys division was stretched along the Emmitsburg Road, north of what is today United States Avenue and, tra- and passing kind of by the Daniel Klingel Farm. But his Humphreys division is along the road. They're going to start taking it in the front from Wilcox's brigade and also Lang's, Colonel David Lang's Floridians who are kind of coming up to Wilcox's left. If that wasn't problem enough for Humphreys, and look, Humphreys, you know, as I said, he's an old-time Army regular. He's another one of these guys who's probably chomping at the mouth to, uh, to see a little bit of combat here. But the problem Humphreys has is he is now distracted by this activity coming at his front. Barksdale is now sweeping up on his left. So Humphreys, if he doesn't do something, is going to get attacked from both sides. It's right about this time that General Sickles is wounded and taken off the battlefield. Sickles turned command of the Corps not over to Humphreys, the West Pointer, but to David Burney, the commander of the other division. Burney issues an order for Humphreys to fall back towards what they call the Round Top Ridge. And Burney wants Humphreys to kind of connect Humphreys with Burney's line. But guess what? Her, Burney's men are fleeing and have broken to the rear. So Humphreys is really left twisting out there on the road by himself. As we've alluded to, we have the Alabama Brigade of Cadmus Wilcox, as well as the Florida Brigade under command of Colonel David Lang. These are part of Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps. And even though they're often kind of considered part of this attack, which we often associate with Longstreet, this is now A.P. Hill's troops getting involved. But let's think pre-Gettysburg, the reorganization of Lee's army. Before this, Richard Anderson had served under James Longstreet. They had a good working relationship, so I don't think it's a surprise that you're seeing Anderson as being the connecting division between Longstreet's Corps and A.P. Hill's Corps on July 2nd. Yeah, I agree. You know, and in later years, Longstreet would actually blame some of the failures of the day on Wilcox supposedly not adequately protecting his own left flank. And again, I think that's sort of just an example, unfortunately, of what's going to happen, though, when you have these mixed commands kind of working together, you're obviously they're going to have a little bit of finger pointing afterwards. And that's later on. But I just to me, that's always been just kind of an interesting aspect of it. And now, of course, is General Humphrey's Federal Third Corps Division is under attack from two sides. Many of his regiments are just stuck in a vortex of fire along the Emmitsburg Road. One of those brave regiments was the 275 odd men of the 11th New Jersey who are going to suffer an estimated 55% casualties in and around the Klingel Farm, which is probably going to be the second highest in Humphrey's division, including multiple regimental commanders who are going to be killed or wounded during the course of the action. God-fearing Colonel Robert McAllister, the commander of the regiment, later wrote, with one half of the officers and men killed and wounded, with a heavy flank and front fire, the wonder is how the regiment held together even as long as it did. What a rough patch for these guys from the Garden State. I mean, this is a tough spot to be in on any battlefield, and they find themselves here on the afternoon of July 2nd. 
second. So according to General Humphreys, quote, the fire that we went through was hotter in artillery and as destructive as at Fredericksburg. It was positively terrific. The troops on my left retired, leaving me to catch it, my left flank being turned all the time. I had to retire. So as Humphreys pulls his men back from the Emmitsburg Road towards Cemetery Ridge, he, according to Humphreys, we did so very slowly, continuing the contest, whose fire was destructive in the extreme. But Humphreys, being the old army officer, refused to retreat in the face of the enemy, so the general and his staff prevented the movement from turning into an utter rout. And Humphreys later wrote, 20 times did I bring my men to a halt and face about to return fire on the Confederates, forcing the men to do it. Many of the men on Humphreys' staff admired their superiors' cool and collective efforts. The general was without a superior on the field of battle, full of fire, and yet in absolute equipose. And I don't even know if I pronounced the word equipose right at Eric, but that's what he said. Humphreys, a man of action and a man of words. <laughs> well said. So at this point, we get to a kind of an interesting part of this attack is we know Barksdale's men are going to keep pushing. And this is often where people talk about this great charge of William Barksdale. But as they cross the Emmitsburg Road, we have to kind of look at this with a critical eye. And I think Jim and I both have thoughts that, you know, maybe other than the smashing of the peach orchard line, the follow-up maybe doesn't match the lead-up. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, it's interesting that, again, the Civil War, the Gettysburg literature, always portrays Barksdale's assault on the Peach Orchard as a smashing success. And as an isolated incident, if you were to stop the clock at the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road, you would have to say that that's true. But ultimately, the decision that Barksdale makes to pursue Union troops beyond the Emmitsburg Road and towards Cemetery Ridge is ultimately going to lead to disaster for his brigade. Barksdale's Mississippi Brigade, 1,600 men, are going to end the battle with suffering about 49% casualties, the highest casualty rate in Longstreet's Corps on the second day. Folks, somebody explain to me how that ultimately is success. So the decision to pursue the troops towards Cemetery Ridge is going to turn out to be a disaster for Barksdale's men. I think Eric and I have both decided we're not going to cover that combat in detail today because that starts to get us away from the uh, peach orchard but chalk that up as another potential topic for a uh, future episode we should add not only the 49 percent casualties of course that's going to include barksdale himself who will be mortally wounded yeah. in a few moments and multiple officers as well absolutely so as jim said we're not going to really get into what follows after this the attacks of these multiple Confederate brigades against Cemetery Ridge. That's really its a whole other topic in and of itself, which hopefully we'll cover because it is a fascinating yeah, aspect yeah. to July 2nd. So now really the fighting that we associate with the Peach Orchard is now over. That area is now in Confederate hands. And often we view the Peach Orchard as a July 2nd action, but it is going to play a key role the next day in Lee's thinking and what's eventually going to become the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble assault. Yeah. That's right, Eric. And you know, I always bristle. I get my jimmies a little bit in a rustle when we, you know, sort of just focus on first day and second day and third day. 
The Peach Orchard is one of the best examples on the battlefield of how actions from one day carry over into the second, in this case, July 2nd into July 3rd. So when Robert E. Lee wanted to renew the attack on July 3rd, he was not feeling defeated. I mean, he had certainly gained the ground along the Emmitsburg Road that he had intended to gain. July 2nd into the morning of July 3rd, he puts artillery into the Peach Orchard along the Emmitsburg Road, just like he wanted to and just like Dan Sickles feared that he was going to do. So Confederate artillery on the morning of July 3rd is where it's supposed to be. And Lee says in his report that these partial successes determined me to continue the assault the next day, talking about July 3rd. And with proper concert of action and with the increased support that the positions gained on the right, Folks, that's a description of the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road. With the increased support that the positions gained on the right would enable the artillery to render our assaulting columns, we should succeed, and it was determined to continue the attack. Folks, as you can imagine, we're going to do a whole separate Pickett's Charge episode or episodes, but the point here is, is that July 2nd's Confederate victory leads to Lee's decision in part in part to launch Pickett's charge on July 3rd and again adds to the overall significance of the action in and around the Peach Orchard. Jim makes a good point about the impact the Peach Orchard is going to have on Lee's thinking on July 3rd and occasionally we get special tour requests to focus on certain aspects of the battle and one of the more popular ones is surrounding Pickett's charge on July 3rd and one of the places I will stop in the course of a tour such as that is I stop along the Emmitsburg Road and the Peach Orchard. And usually mm-hmm. yeah. my groups are sometimes shocked at why are we here? This is July 2nd. And they're actually blown away by the Confederate presence of artillery in that area on the third day of the battle. Yeah, you're right, Eric. Obviously, having co-written a book previously on Pickett's Charge, I get a lot of requests for Pickett's Charge tours too, and I do the same thing. And it's another dimension of the battle that increases the complexity of what we normally consider Pickett's Charge. And again, as we've said, ties into the uh, significance of the Peach Orchard. Hey, just one more thing I want to mention, though, before we move on, because I think in our enthusiasm here and talking about everything that's going on, I do want to mention, too, that during the course of the July 2nd action, Meade also pulled reinforcements off of Culp's Hill to help reinforce gaps in the Union left. And although none of those troops from Culp's Hill ultimately went into the Peach Orchard directly, it's just another example of how Sickles's move to the Peach Orchard on the Union left had far-reaching implications all over the battlefield. The Union Army almost lost Culp's Hill on the right flank because of this. And again, you can tie all of that back to the movement to the Peach Orchard. So look, at the end of the day, as interesting as I find Dan Sickles the individual and the colorful history that surrounds him, it would be hard to argue that Sickles did anything but disrupt the Union defense of Cemetery Ridge. But I think then the final question that I would ask people is, did Sickles' move to the Peach Orchard help the Confederate cause? 
And I think the answer is no, because as we've just said, Longstreet is gonna ultimately suffer heavy casualties fighting his way through what we would now know to be meaningless positions. And even though Lee and Longstreet are gonna have the peach orchard July 2nd and July 3rd, it does not become key or decisive terrain that is gonna cause the Confederate Army to win the battle. And folks, final assessment on the peach orchard, bloody fighting that doesn't help either army. And sometimes in warfare, that's the way it goes. And when I think of this Confederate attack that Lee is envisioning on July 2nd, in many ways, it kind of reminds me of a wave out in the ocean. And you think about a wave when it crests, that's when it's at its most powerful moment. The Confederate wave crests at the peach orchard. Lee wants it to crest on Cemetery Ridge. It's cresting way before it needs to be. So what we have is just like in nature with that wave, we're seeing a trickle of water moving towards Cemetery Ridge, not the all-powerful wave that Lee is wanting to overwhelm Union forces there and deliver that decisive victory he's hoping for. So I think the disruption is very real, and I think it does incredibly harm the Confederate Army on July 2nd. Mm -hmm. I will close my portion of this conversation with the words of General James Longstreet, shortly before he died in 1902. Now, as many people know, and this is a human interest element that I get into in a lot of my work, my Sickles at Gettysburg book and my Gettysburg's Peach Orchard book, I've always been entertained, if you will, by the post-war bromance between Longstreet and Sickles, these two former adversaries coming together as friends, supporting each other's war record throughout the post-war controversies. But Longstreet, in 1902, wrote to Sickles, and I quote, I believe it is now conceded that the advanced position at the Peach Orchard, taken by your corps and under your orders, saved that battlefield to the Union cause. So folks, Longstreet almost literally went to his grave publicly supporting Sickles' move to the Peach Orchard. Is this the moment when the public love of James Longstreet that we've seen building in the last generation does it end now because Longstreet supports Sickles? Who knows? Let's keep track of this. And I should add, when I picture Longstreet and Sickles together, this, as Jim said, the bromance against these two, I just picture they are the most controversial tag team in Gettysburg history. You're not finding two more controversial individuals that relates to this battle than these guys. And the fact that they have a relationship after the war, mm -hmm. it's fascinating to me that these guys are sort of, in many ways, drawn together because yeah. of their isolation from the rest of the armies that they are once a part of. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, and as we sit here talking and we have various things up on our computer screen, I'm looking at an image of them together. 1888, the 25th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Again, one of these many veterans reunions during that era. And I'm looking at an image of Longstreet and Sickles together with a group of other veterans. And two down from Sickles, well, maybe three down from Sickles, is none other than Joshua Chamberlain. So I often tell Chamberlain supporters, imagine your saintly Joshua Chamberlain, saintly Chamberlain who in their eyes can do no wrong, hanging out with evil, Devil Dan Sickles. What does that tell us about what we think about Sickles, Longstreet, and dare I say, Chamberlain himself? Stop, stop. You're ruining <laughs> people's dreams of this battle. We can't do this. Hopes and dreams being shattered. Shattered as we speak. They I had think hopes, they had dreams. I can hear them shattering in the 16 states we're heard in currently. And what about Canada? 
And Canada. And Canada, too. So as we talked about in part one of the Peach Orchard, this was land owned by Joseph Scherfe and his family. And often we view these farms on the battlefield, they're sort of window dressing to this great tragedy. And we sort of think of places like the Rose Farm, the Trosel Farm, the Klingel Farm, the Scherfe Farm. They're just names on a map, but we don't really think about the human impact that's going to come to these families that did not ask for a battle to be fought on their property. So Jim, could you give us a little bit about kind of what happens to the Sherfies after the war, after this battle? Yeah, absolutely. So initially, the Sherfies returned to their home in the uh, days following the battle. And as you can imagine, their home was wrecked, filth, blood, vermin everywhere. Their barn had been burned to the ground, set on fire by an errant artillery shell. Many wounded Union soldiers who had initially been seeking refuge in that barn were unable to crawl out when it was set on fire, and many of those soldiers were burned alive, a ghastly sight that awaited the Scherfe family when they came home. But they rebuilt. As many of the locals were forced to do, they they tried to get their lives back on track. Ironically, in 1866, on July 4th, the barn burned down again. The Sherfies once again had to sort of rebuild. They returned to their home, and in the ensuing years, as veterans reunions gained popularity and more battle veterans came back to the battlefield, the Sherfies played host to many of the men who fought in and around their property and would entertain them and the two sides would would share stories. Now the Sherfies filed a damage claim of about 2400 or so dollars and the damage claim was denied in 1883 because the Sherfies were essentially unable to prove which army did the damage. As some of you may know, the US government would not pay for claims of damage caused by the Confederate armies. In the Sherfies case, they were unable to conclusively prove which army did the damage and their claim was denied. Joseph Sherfie died in 1882, but in 1905, the government started to make their first serious efforts at obtaining property in and around the Peach Orchard and through condemnation proceedings, National Park eventually gained the Sherfie's property. One of the things that Britt and I thought was kind of interesting and ironic when we wrote our book, Gettysburg's Peach Orchard, is how the Sherfie family survived the great battle, but ultimately in many ways lost their property to the battle. Because of preservation and because of tourists tramping over their property, they decided to move away. And ultimately, as we said, the government took control of the property. Kind of as an interesting side note, in the 1950s, this whole area of the battlefield became a mecca for commercialization in part because of the proximity to the Eisenhower farm. So you had motels and gas stations and things like that all popping up along the uh, Emmitsburg Road corridor. Perhaps the most infamous of these establishments was Stuckey's, a pecan shop. Eric, did you have you ever eaten at Stuckey's? I have. The pecan log is magnificent. I'm sure it tasted even better on the Gettysburg battlefield. On the Gettysburg battlefield, and it did. And, and you know, although it was in a prominent position, it literally advertised itself as being at the Peach Orchard. Even in that era, it kind of started to rub some preservationists the wrong way. I've got a quote from a visitor in the early 1970s who wrote to his local newspaper, across the road from the entrance to the Peach Orchard, we have a Stuckey's. You know it is a Stuckey's because the Coca-Cola 
sign, which is adjacent to the establishment's Texaco sign, tells you so. And that's what the peach orchard unfortunately looked like in a less enlightened era. When I talk about the battle, I refer to the citizens of Gettysburg as really the unsung heroes of the battlefield. And we look at the Sherfies' experience, 20 years to try to get $2,400 worth of damages. Now today, you have $2,400 worth of damage. That's a serious amount of change for a lot of people. But think about that would be in the equivalency of today's money. That's a significant loss to their property, which I don't think we often Mm -hmm. sort of correlate. When we look at these numbers, we think of, oh, okay, it's $2,400. We don't think what that would be in today's money. You're right. And, you know, what characterizes the Sherfies is that they were industrious, hardworking people. But like you say, to wait 20 years and to fight bureaucratic red tape to try to get your damage claim, it kind of boggles the imagination. I'm just going to add two more things sort of on this preservation angle and then kind of wrap up this segment. But I do want to mention that in 2008, the National Park Service replanted 133 Messina peach trees in the orchard. And the only reason I want to mention that is because that was funded with a dedicated group of private individuals. They call themselves the Peach Orchard Brigade. And it was really through their generosity and hard work that the peach orchard was replanted and that we have, we have something today. And again, as Eric, a recurring theme you and I have throughout these series is how do we get people involved in the Civil War again? And I want to give my hats off to the Peach Orchard Brigade for their fine work in 2008 and replanting the peach trees. And I know that those folks are still around and they do other things here on the battlefield. Last but not least, the Sherfy House stands today in an excellent state of preservation. It is managed by the Gettysburg Foundation, but although the bullet holes and some damage are still visible on both exterior and interior walls, the Sherfy House remains today is sort of, well, I hate to sound corny, but a living tribute to the Sherfy family who once occupied it. And I would urge anybody, if you get a chance to walk around the house, it's absolutely riddled on the exterior walls with bullet holes and shell damage. Just look at the trajectory of where some of those rounds were coming from. A lot of them are coming from the peach orchard when times when you have Confederates moving into that area, what's today the garden there. So it shows you once again, those Union artillery units hanging on to the very last pouring fire into their adversaries at that point. Yeah, and likewise, you know, the 114th Pennsylvania, the Zouav monument that sits in front of the Sherfy House, where is the individual on that statue facing? He is facing towards the peach orchard. And again, you can kind of envision just that final onrush of Barksdale's men coming from that direction. So you probably noticed that in last week's episode, we did not answer any listener questions, which is a first for us as well, but we wanted to wait for the end of this one to kind of put a bow onto this episode and our first listener question comes to us from doug a super fan doug in canada the great in white north the great white north oh canada he's going to ask how critical was the lack of support of barksdale's attack by wofford's georgia brigade to the outcome could it have made the difference between victory and defeat on july 2nd this is one where if we look at it, we're getting kind of more into the wheat field fight. But as we know, Wofford's men, as we mentioned, come in to support Barksdale. They're eventually going to move off towards the western edge of the wheat field. Barksdale's going to move off more towards the Trosel farm. And there's a couple ways we can look at this. One, 
would one brigade have added really any more heft to that Confederate attack moving towards Cemetery Ridge? I'm not really sure. I think in the grand scheme of things, Wofford adding his weight into the Wheatfield fight really turns the tide there. So I think it's really a trade-off. Do we have a potential success on Cemetery Ridge for a very smashing success at the tail end of the Wheatfield fight? Yeah, I mean, I I agree regarding the sort of addition and subtraction notion of this. If you take Wofford away from the weed field and add him to Barksdale, you might help one at the expense of the other. Um, But just a couple things, but I do think it's a good question because I think it is, again, is one of those uh, controversies of the second day at Gettysburg that was never really satisfactorily answered. Wofford coming in behind Barksdale with another fresh 1,600 men why didn't Wofford follow more directly behind Barksdale? You know, Longstreet was really leading Wofford's men into action at some point. You may remember the guys are kind of cheering and Longstreet says, cheer less, fight more, which I always think is one of the great Gettysburg second day pep talks. But as Longstreet leads the guys, as you said, more towards the wheat field and away from Barksdale, the only time that I'm aware of that Longstreet ever really addressed why was in his memoirs. And even at that time, he said he thought he could add their weight towards Little Round Top, which to me kind of feels like it's a little bit of post-battle posturing by Longstreet. But I will say Barksdale, as I touched on earlier, 49% casualties, Wofford. 20% casualties. So there's no doubt Barksdale's guys cleared the way for Wofford to come through. We also look at Wofford's attack as part of this overall Confederate operation on July 2nd. Once again, it's a little disorganized. There's no guiding hand. Something that we've talked about earlier in this episode, we're now seeing showing up on other parts of the battlefield. And once again, as Jim pointed out, Longstreet is leading Wofford's men into the fight. He's there. If anybody can put a guiding hand on this attack, Mm -hmm. it's James Longstreet. I agree. I agree. And although it isn't really pertinent to the question at all, is Wofford's men are passing the Confederate artillery batteries. One of the artillerists says to Wofford, hurrah for you of the bald head, which again, I always just thought was kind of a cool cheer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really has nothing to do with superfan Doug's question, but I'm just kind of throwing that in anyways. So our next question comes to us from Superfan Bob, and he's going to ask, did General Sickles move to the Peach Orchard for it to be used as an artillery platform, and if so, how much did it help in the fight, even though the Federals ultimately withdrew? Well, yeah, and again, great question. Thanks for the question, Bob. You know, I think hopefully now over two episodes, we've summarized that. Clearly, artillery was on Sickles' mind when he moved forward, and I think to summarize during the early portions of the action, we think Federal artillery did a good job, uh, but ultimately they were, as we said, overwhelmed. And I think it would be an interesting point when we look at this, is it a great artillery platform, or did you have some really talented artillery batteries in yeah, that area? That's an area? interesting point. And I would almost say, let's take it reversed. Let's yeah. put Confederate guns in the Peach Orchard and have the same situation with Union artillery. I don't know if they would perform as well as they did. I think it's a testament mm-hmm. to the performance and capabilities of those soldiers. That's an interesting point. Maybe less of it as it, the strength of it as an artillery platform. I think sometimes we look at the talent rather than the position itself. Yeah, I think there's, um, and I would just add to that, 
you know, you talk about, well, let's put Confederate batteries in the peach orchard. Well, we do. Yeah. It's called July 3rd. Yeah. Now, granted, they're firing in the opposite direction, but I certainly do not think the Confederate artillery distinguishes itself on July 3rd. The only other thing that I'll add is ultimately at the end of the day during the Union retreat towards Cemetery Ridge, we did not mention Freeman McGilvery's artillery line, which very much covers a lot of the ground that Sickles abandoned early on July 2nd. I think July 2nd and July 3rd, both for the Union and the Confederate, they not only show that, frankly, the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road is not that great of an artillery position, but I think Freeman McGilvery also shows on July 2nd and July 3rd that the ground that Sickles abandoned could, in fact, be defended by artillery. So at the end of the day, folks, whether he was doing it because of Hazel Grove or not, Hazel Grove did not repeat itself. And one point on Freeman McGilvery, dare I say, Maine's greatest hero of the Battle of Gettysburg. So our final listener question comes from Superfan Debbie, who's going to ask us kind of a larger view question here, not necessarily about the peach orchard, but of course the peach orchard is going to play a role in this. And she's going to ask, what is the one thing the Confederates could have done to clinch a complete day two victory? And as we've sort of hinted at, really the biggest issue comes down to coordination. Better coordination of these attacks, I think later, better coordination and support by Anderson's men, Mm -hmm. even moving forward, Robert Rhodes' 2nd Corps Division as well. I think if we would have had better communication, better coordination, maybe some of these breakthroughs that we sort of see as initial successes might have been turned into a greater victory for the Confederates on July 2nd. And I think it points to how close the Confederates actually pulled, almost pulled this thing off on July 2nd. Despite everything that went wrong, it almost worked out. Yeah, typically speaking, when I give battlefield tours or when I'm speaking to groups or that, lack of coordination is probably the number one reason that I often give over, quote unquote, why did the Confederates lose? Obviously, the Confederates also lost because the Yankees won. And you don't know in any other scenario how Union defenders might have responded to something. I guess I'll sort of throw one out here. Might be if Longstreet attacks earlier. And folks, I'm not getting into the sunrise attack order. I'm just saying as a general statement, if Longstreet can get that attack underway earlier on July 2nd, granted he would be doing so without Law's Alabama Brigade because he was waiting for them to get on the field. But if you can do that earlier before the 6th Corps arrives on the scene and you kind of have the 5th Corps over opposite the right flank as a reserve that Eric talked about earlier and, you know, maybe you kind of have sickles in motion i you know i think if sick if long street attacks earlier and i've done some numeric analysis on this that i'm going to drag out maybe when we do our long street episode but to answer debbie's question one thing lack of coordination two things attack earlier in the day so once again we want to thank everyone for your questions i think it really adds a layer to our episodes that we would not have otherwise it also gets us thinking about things that maybe we didn't think about and gives us kind of some form as we look forward so if you have any questions about our episodes we of course always ask for questions a couple days sometimes a week before the episode's recording so if you have questions 
feel free to ask. I think we've got a really good average right now of answering these questions on the We air. could not do it without our super fans and our followers. Eric, if I would ask for anything more, I would just ask folks. At the beginning of part one, Eric talked about all the different platforms that we're on right now. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could please leave positive reviews on those platforms. You know, the way these types of things work is the more ratings and the more reviews you get, kind of the higher it'll show up in search engines and things like that. Look, folks, Eric and I are not doing this for the money. (laughs) We do this at our own time and expense because we enjoy talking about the Battle of Gettysburg for you. But we would like to get more traction. We'd like to get more listeners and more followers and keep this thing growing. And uh, you can help us by leaving reviews that will, as I said, help get us a little more traction on some of the various search engines and things like that. Absolutely. Also, if you're a fan of ours on Facebook, yeah. the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, share our page, invite others to join. More people, the better. So please do that. Any support you have, we greatly appreciate. So as we are sort of wrapping up part two of the Peach Orchard, uh, we have gone much longer than I think we had thought. We've got about two hours of content and what we thought we might have packed into an hour. So I think it's some good stuff. I think we hope you will enjoy it. Uh, now, as we always say at the end, uh, if you are coming to Gettysburg, please consider using a licensed battlefield guide. There's a number of avenues to do that. One is the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides office. You can reach them at area code 717-337-1709. You can also get a battlefield guide at the Gettysburg National Military Park at 1195 Baltimore Pike and also at the Gettysburg Heritage Center at 297 Steinware Avenue. As we say this, once again, we are coming to you from the Reliance Mind Saloon, so we want to thank them for hosting us here, uh, as they have done for all of our episodes. If you're in town, please stop by, show them support for the support they show us. With that said, as we look at our next episode moving forward, we are now going to move into July 3rd, and maybe the most famous action of the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge. Jim, do you have any thoughts of the episode going in? Yeah, I sure do. You know, geez, I hate to keep promoting books, but having co-written a book in 2015 entitled Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, I often say that as a battlefield guide, the number one military question that I often get is people will stand at the Virginia Monument, they will look out across the field of Pickett's Charge, and they will shake their head and they will say, what was Lee thinking? So I think with Pickett's Charge, we're going to start with what was Lee thinking, but then I really want us to get into, as we did tonight, a little bit more of the human interest stories, some of the individuals involved, what is Longstreet's part in all of this, Pettigrew, Trimble, we can't forget that part of the field, and last but not least, the Yankees had something to do with it. So we got to cover the Union defense as well. As always, please find us on Facebook, the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Like our page, share our page. Also, any reviews you can give us on the various platforms that the podcast is on. Please do that. It means a lot to us. And we want to thank you for listening to us once again. uh, This is the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Yeah, I'm licensed battlefield guide James Hessler. My co-host is licensed battlefield guide Eric Lindblade. Thanks for listening.